Welcome to the Auxiliary Chamber, the International Law Podcast. Welcome back everyone to the Auxiliary Chamber. Today I have the honor of presenting the third part in the series on the Truth, Reconciliation and National Unity Commission in the Seychelles, this time with Vice Chair Michael Green. This episode continues off the back of episode 21 and 22, where in the first parts, we looked at the TRNUC with Chair Gabriel McIntyre, and we discussed a lot of the commission's history, its mandate, and the personal experiences of leading the commission. Since then, the commission has finalized most of its mandate and provided its findings to the Seychelles government. In this third part, we are going to focus on what's happened afterwards and focus on the personal experiences of Michael Green, the vice chair. And we're going to specifically dive into the power of amnesty, the commission's recommendations, victim reparations, the lasting impact, and what steps the government has taken and will take. I would highly recommend listening to the first two parts before diving into this part. Without further ado, here is episode 25. Welcome back, everyone, to the Auxiliary Chamber. I'm here today with Vice Chair Michael Green, and we're going to delve into the Truth, Reconciliation, and National Unity Commission in the Seychelles. How are you today? I'm very, very well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule and the busy past three years to talk to me. And I just wanted to start and ask if you could maybe introduce yourself a little bit and give a little bit of a background on yourself and the TRNUC. Well, I was born in the Seychelles, so Seychelles parents, and uh, did my education here. And then I was scheduled to go and study law. But uh, I had also joined a political party, the SPUP of Albertini at the time. And uh, a few months before the elections, he told me that they were short of candidates and that he needed me to stand as a candidate for one of the constituencies. So I gave up my scholarship. I stood for the elections and I was successful in carrying my constituency. I stayed in that position for seven years altogether. I was elected first in uh, 1967. I was 21 years old. The universal suffrage had just come in in September of 67. And then I was re-elected in 1970. Took part in the first constitutional conference at Marlborough House in London. And uh, after SPUP lost the elections in 1970, the party did an about uh, the question of independence. And in my opinion, Seychelles was not ready for independence. The politics was too new. People had never worked in government. Politicians were basically would have had to learn on the job, which they did with disastrous results. So I resigned from SPUP and then, of course, my life then became quite a, a hectic thing to just to stay ahead of 
whatever they had planned for me. Was there retribution or were they unhappy with you for resigning? They were very unhappy and uh, they, uh, they, they were a threat to my life. Even the governor, who still had a governor at the time, he called me and told me he's sending a couple of police officers to look up. Then uh, I went overseas to Italy and did a course in hotel and tourism management. Came back and joined a company which owned uh, the first hotel, the Reef Hotel in Seychelles. And uh, I stayed with them until 1978. And by then I'd launched my own uh, businesses. In uh, 1981, I was informed by somebody who was on the executive of SPUP that it had been decided to make me disappear, my wife and I. So we just packed a couple of suitcases, closed the house, and took a plane and left. A couple of years later, we obtained political asylum in the United States. And uh, then I worked in the Caribbean. We were in exile for 16 years. And then I came back and uh, worked a short stint in a hotel just over a year. And then went into my own uh, businesses again. What allowed you to come back? Well, by then, there had been a change in constitution. They had gone to the multi-party system, and the Americans were very sort of protective in a way. And then how did you get connected to the TRNUC, and how did that role for you start, and what became your role? Well, the TRNUC... TRNUC had been advertising for commissioners. And uh, I met one of the persons in the Constitutional Appointments Authority. And I just sort of generally inquired, how is it going? Where are they going to start? And she told me that uh, they don't have enough commissioners to start and then I thought well maybe I can give a hand and I applied was offered the position of commissioner we were sworn in on the 9th of May 2019 and at the very first meeting the commission had to elect a vice chairperson and I was uh, unanimously elected. It has been a, a very big learning experience for me, especially what I learned through Gabrielle from all the legal things, conventions and whatever. And uh, I had the institutional sort of memory because I started uh, politics in, with politics in Seychelles in 1964. 
people are able to see everything. Everything. And I wasn't just a, a body in Seychelles. I was a, I was involved in, in the politics, in the trade unions. That sort of uh, involvement got me to know a lot more than people generally knew. What were your initial thoughts on the goals and kind of the mandate of the commission and what they aim to do in the Seychelles? The goals were very, I thought they were very noble. And uh, the, the difficulties came out of the fact that nobody in Seychelles knew what the commission was all about. You read little bits about the South African Commission. And that was about all, all you ever got to know. Gabrielle had had the experience. And uh, without her, I don't think we would have got anywhere. She was extremely knowledgeable, I would say, about the, the, the conventions, the laws, and uh, trying to explain to people that we were there to find out if there was a violation of a human right by a government agency that if uh, A took B's land, you know, in, some people came to us with cases of 1838, and we had to be able to explain to them how we, it didn't concern us. That must have been a little bit difficult to, to explain to everyone, just a very narrow, my, narrow mandate that you had, and what fit and what didn't fit. That's right. The mandate was very narrow. There were things which people didn't like to start with. And uh, I think most people still don't sort of agree with up to now. One is the question of uh, amnesty. And the other one is the question of how much and who pays the reparations. That makes sense. I think we'll get on to both of those points in a little bit. Yeah. I think right before we dive into the point of amnesty, I just wanted to know how it was working with Gabrielle McIntyre. Of course, we had our two episodes with her and how it was working with the other commissioners, as I assume you all came from such different backgrounds and, of course, different perspectives from the dictatorship and different perspectives on how to move forward. There were two or three who had applied to be the chairperson. But quite frankly, they didn't have what was required. Gabrielle came in with her experience and knowledge and, and uh, set up a program to, first of all, train the commissioners as to what we were supposed to do, train the investigators, train just about everyone. The commissioners were from very different backgrounds, both from uh, the work ethic and uh, other aspects. Gabrielle and I, we worked on average 10 hours a day, seven days a week. 
there were commissioners who came once in a while, you know, once a week, half a day. Yeah, up to the point where eventually we had to put our feet down and say, sorry, this is a full-time job. If you have another occupation, you have to, to get out of one of the two. And then uh, as a result of that, two of the commissioners resigned. They, we started off with the, a commission of seven. After they left, we couldn't, we didn't have time to go through the process of advertising for new commissioners. They would have had to go all the way back to read all the cases over again. So we asked for an amendment to the statute. And we got the amendment reducing the number of uh, on the commission to five. And we stayed with five until uh, we closed. I understand. It must be really important to have everybody there equally committed and equally able to do the work since it was such a such a huge task. It was vital to have everybody there because even in the act, it says that the decision shall be by consensus and should be unanimous. We've had cases where we haven't all agreed on the same thing. I've dissented in a few cases. But at least I was there, we could discuss it over and over and see the different aspects. Sometimes I change my mind. They, you know, and other times somebody else changed uh, his or her mind. Yeah, that's of course a really important part of the process. Probably one of the aspects that took the most controversy in and outside of the commission was of course the power and impact of being able to provide amnesty. So I wanted to maybe to start to ask your views, what were and are your views now on the ability of the commission's truth for amnesty power and how was this a good idea and how did, what did you think about it? I thought it was necessary because when you look at the context of Seychelles, from the time of the coup to the time of the establishment of the commission, you find that it was a, a period when people were terrified. I don't know how many times in hearings, Gabrielle would ask somebody, but why didn't you go to the authorities? And the answer has been, in those days, you had nowhere to go. If you talked, you would disappear. This was what the people felt. So when, then the, the amnesty question, most of the violations were committed by young people who had been inducted into the army, subjugated and brainwashed 
into believing that anyone who didn't agree with the policies of the government was an enemy of the government and it was the duty of the soldiers to get rid of the enemies of the people. The other aspect is that they did not just wake up one morning and decide to go and commit uh, a violation. They were ordered to do it. Unfortunately, the one who was the main culprit for all this, he had died during the term of the, of the commission. The other one, James Michel, he's left the country, he's in the UAE. And uh, I personally felt that the, the, the perpetrators were not entirely responsible, that there were others who should have come forward as well. And uh, looking at it, you know, I, I thought there would be no purpose. We would not get anyone to come forward if they knew that after they had come forward, they could be arrested and charged and jailed. We had to offer them a bargain of some sort that was strong enough to entice them to come forward. Did the people of the Seychelles understand this? Or what was their view on the amnesty question? It's a very divided uh, uh, population. The, there are people who understand it. There are those who say, well, maybe they can be given a, a lesser sentence. It should, it should have been something like plea bargaining. And there are others, some of the families, some of the victims who say no, no forgiveness whatsoever. But they have been victims who've sat and listened to the perpetrators, questioned them, and finally forgiven them. And amnesty has been granted. The biggest perpetrators have not come forward to confess to anything. Even when accused, they've just denied any knowledge. I wasn't there, I didn't know, I never did this. So on the whole, I would say amnesty was necessary. Do you think it was also successful? Yank, you mentioned where there are times where people were able to forgive. Do you think that it, it was able to succeed in this reconciliation and unity aspect of the commission? Well, I remember one of the cases where we granted amnesty to an ex-police officer who had confessed to planting drugs on somebody. And that person got a jail sentence of 18 years. He served the sentence, but the young police officer then realized that he also had two sons 
just like the person who had been sent to prison. And he came to us, he confessed, he asked for amnesty, we asked the family, and they agreed to meet with him, talk. And when they finished, they, they were, they themselves said, it's as if a heavy weight has been taken off their shoulders. Another one was uh, a man who was wearing a t-shirt and three soldiers sat on him, beat him up, left him for dead. He came to us, he didn't know the names of the soldiers or anything. He gave his testimony in public. That same evening, I got a call from somebody from the other island, Prale, who told me that he's so happy that this man is alive because he has been carrying the burden of thinking he had killed that man on, on the night. He was one of the soldiers who beat him. We spoke to both of them, they agreed to meet. They left the, the auditorium shaking hands and feeling much lighter. With rehabilitation, well, rather reconciliation will come slowly. It's not something that will be in the next two, three years. It's slowly taking root. There are other organizations which are pushing for forgiveness and reconciliation. For instance, there's uh, all the churches are represented in a grouping called SIFCO. So they, all the Catholics, Anglicans, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, whatever else, they all preach forgiveness and reconciliation. So eventually it will come. I think that shows how important it is also to understand the mandate of the commission that I guess the mandate was not to put people behind bars necessarily, but the mandate really was this truth and reconciliation. I guess then now that the work of the commission has ended, I wanted to ask you maybe if you could explain a bit of what the recommendations were from the commission. The commission, of course, delivered, I believe, multiple hundreds of pages to the current president of, of the Seychelles. And of course, within that, I believe a whole chapter on recommendations and how to move forward. And so could you maybe explain a bit what happened to these cases? You've documented them and what were the steps that hopefully are going to be taken or should be taken after the closure of the commission? Well, first of all, the work of the commission is not entirely completed. We still have uh, quite a number of uh, transcriptions to do and then translations, and then scanning, digitalizing, preparing for archiving, archiving itself. We've given a list of the things that need to be done to the National Assembly, because they are going to debate this business of the report now. They will be debating it in July. So they need to know 
what is left and what we would like to have. We said we've suggested uh, a repository where people can go and access all the information digitally. People can do research. But there's so much in there. We have five volumes broken down into different aspects. And then we have, uh, well, to go back, we, we received 504 complaints. Of those, we've made determinations in 370. The others were either withdrawn by the complainants or they were found to be inadmissible or the complainants sometimes just did not give, did not give any further evidence. We heard 1,165 witnesses. And then we've had uh, reports from all sorts of places files that we've copied, I mean, army files, teachers' files, education, whatever. All that, all that documentation is now at State House. And the president is waiting to see what recommendations the assembly makes. We have only determined whether there was a violation in those 370 cases. We have not set a quantum of reparation, but we have drawn up a reparations policy. And there again, that created some controversy. What was the policy? Well, the policy was how much should be awarded for each category of violation. There are 14 violations listed in the act, and it ranges from murder to unlawful imprisonment, loss of employment, going into exile and all that sort of thing. There was a committee that was formed, and they decided to go for something like 20 million rupees per person in the case of a death. Eventually, I had to step in and explain to them that the country just could not afford that. So I said, it can be up to 20 million for a particular case, not per individual. Because if you're looking at somebody with 20 people who qualify as close relatives, you're looking at... A lot of money. Yeah. The country can't afford that. And uh, it goes through different sums. And this is another thing that we had been asking since November 21, what we call the successor body a body that would come in would hopefully, well, it would be necessary to have 
somebody from the Ministry of Finance up there because they know what is available and what is not available. And then other people can sort of make recommendations on how much each person should get. And in my view, they should have the authority to make an order for the payment of the, of the amount they have decided. And how do you think that people have reacted to the possibility of this? Do you think that it's something that's likely to happen? As I think you mentioned, the debate is still going to happen. What are your yeah, thoughts on that? The, both sides of the assembly have spoken briefly in favor of reparations. The opposition is trying to make political capital by saying, pay them their reparations now but no amount has been decided a lot of people are saying yes they agree to reparations but it must not be out of the taxpayers money they say the perpetrators a lot of them especially the party that was in power has a lot of assets and that these assets should be seized and the proceeds distributed to the victims. All that, you know, that is something that we have to the assembly to decide what they want. I don't know what they're going to, to recommend. If we look then more generally at the whole reaction to the end of the report and the rec reparations, how do you think that the government has reacted to the commission? So I think we spoke with Gabrielle about quite a lot of pushback and not a lot of support. How has it been now that the commission has not ended, but the commission has given in the final reports? What was the reaction to that and what have they done with it so far? Well, there again, in my view, they've acted totally wrongly. They've just taken, if I, if I can give you the chronology, on the 31st of March, we presented the final report. By the 1st of April, we were defunct. There was no discussion as to what to do with the documents. Who does it? We had been told there would be a space at State House to store it. Who would look after storage? And all the other things I mentioned, the, transcriptions, translations, the whole works. They just, in the end, it was such a disaster. I had to beg uh, STC to keep cardboard boxes from the supermarket, send my driver to collect them. Everything was packed in there by the staff who were there. I told the staff to stay an extra month just to tidy up. And getting them paid was a real hassle. Then one day in April, we sent everything to State House, and that was the end. Now we don't know what else is going to happen. The public called me 
maybe people who have complaints, they call. Just before I, we started this podcast, there was somebody who called me <laughs> to tell him. Sorry, call me tomorrow. But it carries on. Yeah, and what are they asking of you? To What are the next steps? Or are they asking you but, for the information? They're asking me, what is the next step? At first, you were supposed to put everything on the state house website. It didn't go go in for some reason. Parts went in, parts didn't go in. We had to to make sure that it was properly put on the website, and we had to give copies to the assembly. They've had heated arguments in the assembly about this. Is there then a push in the government or by some people to kind of just ignore the work or just to ensure that nothing happens with it? No, I don't think that that exists. Or I mean, politicians tend to look after themselves first, but sometimes they have to look after other people for them to stay where they are. And okay. in this case, it would be, but then there's been no talk of it. I haven't heard any talk of just put it on a shelf and let it stay there. Other than the determinations that we made for individual cases, we've also given a list of 49 recommendations to the government. How to stop this sort of thing from happening again, how to give it publicity, how to explain it. Some are are controversial. There are a couple of people who are perpetrators. I've sent them perpetrator letters and they got, they've been promoted in government. One of our recommendations is that people like that should not be employed in government. We have the history book that is used in schools now is a total fabrication about Albert Rene and what he did for the country. And we suggested that the new history book is written proper, correct, and biased. Hopefully, they'll take some of those recommendations. So I guess it shows just how much more work, I guess, is there to be done to kind of unwind the dictator's influence is still on the government and, and where it has all stayed where it still is nowadays well this is very obvious and it shows people are complaining about going to a government office and being made to go around in circles the diehards who are there they just say didn't you vote didn't you tick in the top box go and tick again it's been very necessary very useful People who are open-minded understand it and approve of it. In the three and a half years that I've been on the commission, 
I can't say that I've ever felt anger or malice or anything towards me. I go to the market, I talk to every fisherman, every vendor or whatever. I walk through town, wherever I go, people thank us for, for the good work we've done. That's amazing. I guess that's obviously, of course, really important. And I think that almost goes to my last question. It's just, what has the personal impact been for you? Because during the work of the commission and now that the commission's work is closing, how is that for you in this long process? It's too early to tell. I don't know what my role will be, if any, mm -hmm. seeing it forward. And, uh, psychologically, there's a lot of baggage which has been put on us, dumped into our, our minds that it's not easy to get to get over. Well, hopefully the government will allow for a proper closure and a proper mechanism to look after everything that's happened and ensure that your recommendations and remediations are actually implemented. I guess that's the most important thing to hope for. Yeah, the, the, the government has to, to clear that, that sort of burden that people have been carrying for 43 years. And the president has been having a series of public meetings all over the island. And uh, at all the meetings, people stand up and speak and criticize minister after minister. And they said, now we can, we are free, we can talk. We're not afraid of disappearing anymore. So, you know, the, there are aspects which are changing. There are people in the civil service who send other people in circles, but there are others. We're getting a sort of service now from some people, which you would never have seen in the last 43 years. You call, you ask for something, they'll say, yes, I'll send it to you by tomorrow. And by tomorrow, it's there. And they'll call back and say, have you received it? Well, I guess that's already amazing then to see that it's shifting and that it's allowing for yeah, better functioning of government and for people to be able to be free and be able to truly express their opinions, yeah. truly express their experiences. It is a fantastic thing. You walk into a shop now, everybody everybody who walks in will say, good morning, everyone. You know, it's, you see a lot of smiles on people's faces. Well, that's great. I'm really happy to hear that. I think that's probably also for you must feel like the most, the best outcome in a sense yeah. for the commission's work and for all of the hard work that's been done. I must say I am I am touched when uh, you know when people recognize just the simple yeah thank you for the work you've done Mr Green I get a lot of that I'm glad I think that's very important and that note I think I would like to thank you as well again for your time and for being able to come on the podcast and share your experiences is there anything you would like to discuss or think about before we end the podcast? No, I mean, uh, 
I hope that they put our recommendations into practice. And I hope that the people of Seychelles learn from that dark experience and never try to repeat it. I think on that note, I think we'll end the podcast. Thank you so much for all your time and for coming on. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to this episode and your continued support. At this crucial time, it's important to further, as in other episodes, bring awareness to the issues that we talk about, and specifically the role of government in completing the work of a commission such as a TRNUC. I would like to specifically thank Michael Green again for his valuable time and sharing his experiences. Thank you very much everyone, and see you in the next episode.